Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's message is from Psalm 78. And as we think about this psalm, what I would like to kind of communicate is the importance of telling our next generation about the wonders of God. And it's been great that we've been seeing about the wonders of, of God in our uh, worship today. But to kind of start about this and get you thinking is that of t- people who are 15 to 18 years old who have attended church during their high school years, this is kind of like an American survey, uh, high school would be like a gymnasium here. So 15 to 18 years old, if they attended church for one year, 70% of them will stop going to church when they become an adult. Think about that. These are people that have attended for at least one year of church between 15 and 18, and 70% are going to stop going to church when they become 18 or older, basically in the 18 to 29-year-old category. That's kind of bad news because we should be able to have those people stay in church. They have had some exposure. But later in life, of these 70%, about two-thirds will return to church later in life and become a permanent part of church. So there is some good news here. But a lot of research has been done as to why people stop going to church that were brought up in church. And mainly it has to do is they drop out because they don't feel they have the freedom when they're 15 to 18 to ask questions, to express doubts about their faith, and want people to give them answers. That's the basic what it boils down to. They don't feel church is relevant to their lives, in other words. And that's kind of sad, too, that the church would somehow not be a place where we can ask questions, where we can express doubts, when we can say, I don't understand. And so that's a a tragedy within the church. We need to be open to that. And years, a couple of years ago, I heard a story on Focus on the Family. It's a, a radio program. I don't know if they have it here in uh, Europe, but in America, Focus on the Family. And a young man who had kind of grown up in church, according to his testimony, was having feelings for another man, basically homosexual feelings. And he wondered how could he you know, resolve this having gone to church And so he went to a pastor, and the pastor made a pass at him. And so he was like, you know, what do I do? If I turn to the church, and the the church uh, and the pastor makes a pass at me, what do I do? And he was very confused. Well, he happened to get a, a, a move in with another person, a roommate, who happened to be a Christian, And this Christian man just noticed there was something wrong with this young man and began praying for him. And so he um, began to question his roommate. Finally, his roommate opened up and said, yes, I don't know if I'm homosexual, but I have feelings for men. And a pastor made a pass at me. So this young man, the Christian, went over to his roommate, took him by the hand and said, we're going to work through this together. We're going to walk to Jesus. And this young Christian man, after two years, became a Christian and a you know, part of a good Christian community in a church. And it shows that's the type of response that we need. If our children have questions like that, we need to be able to take them by the hand and say, let's walk towards Jesus together. Let's work with this together. They need to have the freedom to express, you know, the things that they're dealing with in their lives. And so other research has looked at what works to keep children or young adults in church. Basically, four things have been pointed out. 
and these are kind of in the first person, these statements, but before age 18, the statement is, I wanted the church to help guide my decisions in my everyday life. That's what helps keep a young person in church, is they want somebody to uh, help them with their daily life. <clears throat> the second one, my parents were still married to each other, and both of them attended church. So if you're here as a married couple, and you're in church together, you're benefiting your children. That helps to keep them in church. The third thing it says, the pastor's sermons were relevant to my life. And so we need to, from the pulpit, whether it be like in this or in a pulpit, like in a life group or a youth group, we need to talk about things that are relevant to the people's lives. The fourth thing, and this is where I'm going to really concentrate some in the message today, is that at least one adult from church made a significant investment in me personally and spiritually between the ages of 15 and 18. And so this may or may not be the parent, it may be somebody else. You may be a single parent and you need somebody else to help with your children. Uh, there's lots of situations like that. Not everybody here comes from parents uh, that are married. So in Psalm 78, let's turn there, Psalm 78. There's going to be basically three points to today's message. And I've called it, Tell the Next Generation. So there's three things that we're going to look at. The next generation in verses 1 through 6 needs to be told about the wonders of God. In verse 7, the next generation needs to hope in God. And in verse 8, the next generation needs to be faithful and obedient. So let's look at these verses, starting in verse 1. Are actually the, the header is actually a part of the Hebrew text. So it says, A masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord in his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Now, this is a, a, a very uh, easy psalm in some ways. Just to summarize it, it's really talking about that we need to tell the next generation about what God has done, but so they will hope in God and they will be faithful to God. So that's just the very basics of this, this message. Just a tiny bit of background is this, when it's, I read there the very first part, a masculine of Asaph. It's a musical term, apparently, that word there uh, that's used, a masculine. Asaph was appointed by David to be a worship leader. And it's very interesting. You can look up in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, and David instructs Asaph to lead the music and play music loudly. That's exactly what he says in 1 Chronicles 15. So if you thought this morning's music was loud, we were biblical then. <laughs> So just keep that in mind. Asaph authored several of the Psalms, Psalm number 50 and then Psalm 73 through 83 were all authored by this person named Asaph. We don't really know anything about him other than he was appointed by David to lead the music in worship. <clears throat> and so when we look at these first six verses, 
about telling the next generation about the wonders of God. It talks about here, it says in verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. The word parable here is not the same as Jesus when he talked in parables. When Jesus talked in parables, it was like a short story that had one main point. But what Asaph uses the word parable here, he's talking about a story. And so this whole psalm is a story. And it's a very long psalm. In fact, it's the second longest psalm in all of the, the psalms that are in there, Psalm 119 being the longest. So Psalm 78 is the second longest. And it's like one long story. If we continue on, and we're not going to read all the verses that continue, but it talks about Israel's disobedience, basically when they rebelled against God in the wilderness and they had to wander for 40 years, and they kept on disobeying God. And so that's basically one long story that he is telling. And so he's saying, I'm going to talk about these things. He says in, there, I will, in verse 2, I will utter dark sayings from of old. He's talking about dark sayings. He's talking about like riddles or uh, illustrations might be a better way to put it. He says, I'm going to use illustrations. He's going to use the illustrations, the history that everybody should know in the Israel society about the rebellion when they were in the land of Egypt and they were delivered uh, by God's mighty hand. And then when it talks about the wonders, the mighty works of God, it's using the exact word that's first used in Exodus chapter 7 to refer to the wonders, the signs that they did, like turning the blood, the Nile to blood, the frogs, the plagues, all those types of things were called wonders and signs. And so he's really referring to those types of examples, the parting of the Red Sea and, and all of those are the wonders, the mighty acts of God that we need to know about those things. We need to tell the next generation about these events. If you look just a little bit down at verse 13 in Psalm 78, it says, He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters like a heap. That's obviously a reference to the parting of the Red Sea. So again, this is the type of thing that he uses in the rest of the psalm are all the mighty acts, the wonders, the things he did, providing manna, providing the quail when they were hungry. All these types of things are used as stories to communicate and say that we need to communicate these to the next generation. Why? Because they need to know the good and the bad. And that's the one of the things here. He's not just saying them, tell them about the good things about the parting of the sea. He's also saying, tell them the bad things about their rebellious, about their stubbornness. And so that both the good and the bad is what's needed to be communicated to them. And so as we think about this, telling people about stories, this is also instructed elsewhere in Scripture. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Basically, as you're going through life, as your daily activities, you need to be talking to your children if you're a parent about the things that God has done in your life. You also need to be communicating the things that where you have messed up and how God has you know, worked in those things to bring uh, resolution uh, to those things. So you need to communicate both the good and the bad to your children as you're going through life. This is something that my dad did constantly when I was a young man in that age range of 15 to 18. I have an older brother, and he was out of the home, out of college, 
and I had my dad basically during the high school years, and my dad, you know, focused on me during those years, and as we were doing things, he would you know, be talking to me about godly things. One particular example I remember, I'm a baseball fan, a baseball nut, if you want to be uh, correct. I, I, I grew up loving baseball, and I know it may, may not be as popular here, but uh, my team is the San Francisco Giants. And one night in the summer, um, we were going to a game on a Tuesday night as a half-price ticket night, and there were 40,000 fans there, San Francisco Giants versus the Atlanta Braves. I think we have an Atlanta Brave fan here, possibly. And so we went to this game, and I don't remember who won the, the game, but afterwards, it was an absolute mess trying to get out of the stadium uh, because of 40,000 fans. There were lots and lots of cars in the parking lot. My dad had at that time a Ford Maverick, a 74 Ford Maverick, and he looked at the traffic and said, let's load up this car with beer cans. And so we walked around the parking lot, crushing cans, you know, emptying them, crushing them, putting them back. We filled up that, that trunk with beer cans. Now that was not unusual. My dad normally did that when he was like walking the dog. He had a bag and he would just bend over, pick up a can, and he recycled those. And what I learned from my dad was the value of a penny because he believed that every single penny that he made from selling those cans, he donated to missions. And he would always tell me, Carrie, a penny will go farther in Africa than it will here in, in the United States where I grew up. And I remember that story so much because my dad set the example for me uh, in that idea of you know, thinking about you know, that every penny counts. And every penny, no matter how much you put in the offering today, how little it was, counts. And that's something that I, I learned from my dad. Now, my wife and I don't have any children. We married a little bit later in life, and children just didn't happen for us for various reasons. But in my life, there have been young people that I have been have the privilege to have the ability to speak into their life. Just want to tell you just a few of them. There's two young men that uh, actually, when I was dating Carla, that I already knew them, Jason and Casey. I would classify, not, not in a bad term, but Jason and Casey's parents, what we would call in the United States, the working poor. They both worked, his parents, but they didn't make a lot of money. They basically could put a roof over the house and have food on there and clothe their children, but doing extra things with their children, like going to an amusement park, going to a movie, and those types of things, they just didn't have the finances to do that. Now, later in life, things did improve for Jason and Casey's parents. Uh, Jason was 15 when I met him. Casey was 12. I'm still friends with them, keep in contact basically, basically by Facebook. But I took Jason and Casey in and just started doing fun things with them, going to a, a, a Magic Mountain, which is a, 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 a amusement park with roller coasters. It has one roller coaster where you have to climb up 18 stories high and you drop down into a loop. It's absolutely wonderful. I love roller coasters. And so I would take Jason and Casey, roller coasters, uh, car shows. They were into boxing. Back then it was uh, Iron Mike Tyson, the Evander Holyfield, and I would have them over and do pay-per-view, and we'd watch bat boxing matches, and we just did a lot of fun things together. And along the way, as I did things with them, I had opportunity to, to build into their lives spiritual things too. I just emulate what I learned from my dad. As I was going along with them, I would say, oh, have you thought about, and things like that. And it just happened naturally, the discipling of Jason and Casey. Another person who is a very a special person to me is Brian. Brian was five years old when his dad died of diabetes. And so his mom raised him, uh, Brian has a very good uncle, and his uncle was a member of the Sunday school class that I was teaching at the time. And by the time this happened, 
Brian was now 15, he had done things with his uncle, but he was like, I want another man to do things with. So Doug, his uncle, came to me and said, could you just spend a little bit of time with Brian once a month? Well, that once a month thing ha has lasted a lifetime. I still keep in contact with Brian too. And we just did the same thing I did with Jason and Casey, go to baseball games, go to car shows. Uh, we went like to the rifle range where you can you know, shoot a rifle and camping and all kinds of, of things with Brian. Uh, he likes lighthouses, so I took him to a lighthouse, Point Reyes, near San Francisco. And over the years, it's the same thing. Just as I, we had time together, you know, we talk about spiritual things. I was able to open up and talk to him, and he was able to open up and talk to me. And one time he wrote me a letter. I cannot read that letter without crying that, that Brian wrote to me. I'm just, you know, amazed by what he thought of me as a person uh, at that time. And then the third person I want to uh, mention is actually a young lady, Lizzie. She's actually Romanian. Her Romanian name would be Raluca, but when she came to America, she took um, her name Elizabeth, but she prefers to be called Lizzie. Lizzie was kicked out of her home at 18 years old after her junior year in high school by her parents. Basically, um, I won't go into all the details, but her parents were not good parents. <laughs> and uh, a lot of things happened that in that getting kicked out, but Lizzie was a, a great, and still is a great kid. And after, through a series of events, with my wife being involved, we asked Lizzie to come live with us. And she did, she lived with us for about two and a half, almost three years. And she moved out last summer and is now on her own. She's now 22 and uh, living on her own now. But when Lizzie moved in, I thought naturally she would gravitate to Carla, which she did, but I was surprised at how much she spent time talking with me. And I always knew that fathers were important in the lives of, of a young woman, but for the first time in my life, I really experienced that a young woman needs a, a man, an older man. And so even though she's not our daughter, a lot of times I'll just for convenience, she is like a daughter. I consider a daughter. In fact, when she moved in, I really felt God saying, think of yourselves as a, as a father to Lizzie. And so I still do think of that, that way towards her. But we spent a lot of time talking, Lizzie and I, and that was a part of a discipleship of her too. So these are just three people that in my own experience, even not having children, where I have invested in the lives of young people. So let's look at, at verse 7, because it really now begins to define for us, not only are we supposed to tell young people about the wonders of God, but it begins to give the reason why. And verse 7 says, so they should set their hope in God. Now most often when we see the word hope, we really don't have an, an idea of what it really means in terms of the Bible. Most of, if I, most of us, if we are to ask you about hope, you might say it's something like wishful thinking. I hope I win the lottery might be a typical type response. You know, we want that, you know, million kroner or million dollars or whatever it is. We think that's going to solve all our problems, but it's just in our idea just like just wishful thinking, something that's really not going to happen. Well, in the Bible, hope has a very different meaning. How many of you here as parents have heard your children say, Mommy, how many more days till Christmas? Daddy, I promise to be really good if you get me blank for Christmas. Well, that idea of a child at Christmas is really what perfectly describes the biblical concept of hope. There are three types of things, or three ways to look at hope in the Bible, and I'm going to use a child at Christmas to illustrate these three points. 
First of all, there's a certainty about the hope. There's an eager expectation about the hope. And then there's waiting. First of all, the certainty. Every child knows what's going to happen December 25th, right? You, you absolutely know. Your children are going to be on, marking on the calendar December 25th is Christmas Day. Why? Because they get presents, right? And so it's a certainty. That child knows nothing is going to cancel. There could be a war going on. There could be a disaster going on. But somehow Christmas is going to happen. And what does the Bible talk about in terms of certainty of hope? It says in Hebrews, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, the inner place behind the curtain refers into the tabernacle where there was an outdoor courtyard. Then there was the holy place, most holy place, and then the inner part of it, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it's talking about that, that special place where God revealed himself once a year to the high priest when he went in to make atonement for sins. Apparently, it talks about that, you know, the tabernacle is like a copy of what's in heaven. So think about this. The hope that we have in God is described as an anchor that enters into the most holy place, the holiest place where the presence of God is. How much more certain can our hope be than an anchor that's anchored in heaven? We have to think that our hope in God is that secure, that safe, that it should anchor us. It should be an anchor to our soul, according to Hebrews here. And then the second thing is the eager expectation. Every child eagerly expects Christmas to come, don't they? They just drive you nuts sometimes, you know, the, about their eager expectation. And what do they want to do? They want to get up early on Christmas morning when you want to sleep, and they want to start opening presents and things like that. And so the eager expectation to me is illustrated by two people, Simeon and Anna, who were eagerly expecting the coming of Jesus. And when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, it was those two that were there in the temple, Simeon and Anna. Why? Because they were eagerly expecting. It says they were old people, Simeon and Anna, and they could die in peace now that they had seen the Savior. But they had such a strong, eager expectation and when Luke uses that term, eager expectation, it's the same term, hope. Their hope in God was such that they eagerly expected the coming of the Savior. The third one is waiting. Boy, this is what drives all the parents crazy. Why? Because the child keeps on saying, how many more days till Christmas? By the way, there's almost four months until Christmas, so there's plenty of t time. But, you know, you're, you're in about three months, your kids are going to start driving you crazy. How much longer do I have to wait? And, you know, they'll act like that. You know, like, I have to wait another week? I have to wait five more days? You know, there, there's the waiting period. And that word wait is also a part of hope. Isaiah chapter 40 says... But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That word there, wait, if you look in the NIV, it translated as hope. It can go either way. In some translations, it says, they that wait upon the Lord, and others they that hope in the Lord. Isn't that the hardest thing? We know that our hope in God is a, a certainty. We know we should be eager to expecting uh, things of God, and yet we have to wait on God. But what's the result of waiting upon God? It says what? We will renew our strengths. We will mount up with wings as eagles. We should run and not be weary, walk and not faint. So it's worth the wait. 
So again, so the idea of hope, the reason why it's so important that we instill a hope in God is because it's a certainty, it's eager expectation, and there's waiting. But what are we really to hope for in the Bible? In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Think about that for a second. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, hope is not a wishful thinking. It's something that we are hoping for, and faith is what supports that hope. And so, in other words, we place our trust in God as we hope for the right things. And so the things that we really need to, to hope for, these are just a, a few things. Number one, the Bible says we should hope in the resurrection. When Paul was on trial, the, the apostle Paul was on trial before King Festus, he said, I'm on trial because I have a hope in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And so we should have a hope that one day when Christ returns, there will be a resurrection of the just and unjust. That's something the Bible tells us about. And won't that be a glorious day when we experience the resurrection? We should also hope for the restoration of all things. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of God. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That eager longing and, and waiting eagerly is the word hope, just giving a nuance to that. One day there's going to be a, a period when God is going to make a new heaven, a new earth, and I really believe at that time, the earth will function the way God intended it to function. Much like in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve sinned, I believe the earth functioned differently than it functions today. And one day, when everything is going to be made new, the earth will function again the way God designed it to function, and our bodies will function the way God designed it to function. No more pain, no more sorrows, no more crying, the Bible describes at the end of time. We should have a hope that one day everything will function the way God designed it to function. And we should also hope in Christ's return. Paul says in Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One day Jesus Christ is coming again. We should have that hope on our hearts. So those are just three things that we should hope for, but there's another one I want to point out, is that we should have hope that God will be with us when we suffer. Paul, when he wrote the letter to Philippians, was in jail. He was in prison. But what does he say in chapter 1 of Philippians? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. That's what Paul was saying. Here he is in prison, and he has a hope that it's all going to work out. He doesn't want to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even if he's in jail and in prison, he doesn't want to be ashamed of that. He can still, whether in life or death, honor God. And so in that time of suffering, he's expressing a hope in God. And the same thing when we're going through hard times, we may not be in jail but if you're going through a hard time, there's no shame in that. What you need to do is find somebody that, that can help you through that hard time. We should be a place where we can lift our hand and say, I need help. And in that time of, of, of need, 
receive the help. We should receive the support of other Christians. So we need to have this. So how does hoping in these things, the resurrection, the renewal of all things, Christ's return, and our hope that God will help us in our suffering, how does that help us in our everyday life? And what I think it shows is if we're hoping in the right things, it's really an expression that we're trusting God to take care of us. We're placing our faith in God, in other words, by hoping in these things that may not always sound like they're going to happen right away. I mean, how, how many years have people been hoping in the return of Christ? Well, centuries they've been hoping in the return of Christ. And it hasn't happened yet. And we can think, wow, it's never going to happen. But it will happen. It helps us to set our minds on the right things. And the Bible talks about in Matthew 6, 33, that if we seek God's kingdom first, what? Then all these other things will be added unto you as well. And so what it is, if we have the right hope, the hope for the right things, and are seeking God's kingdom, then God will take care of those things for you that you're worried about. If you read the uh, prior verses in Matthew 6, we don't have to worry. Why? Because God clothes the lily of the fields. He takes care of us. He's going to take care of the flowers of the field. He's going to take care of us, basically. So the third point in Psalm 78 is in uh, verse 8, that we need to teach or tell the next generation about the wonders of God so they will be faithful and obedient. Verse 8 says that they should not be like their fathers, and here in the fathers is talking about forefathers, not necessarily their birth father. Uh, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Then the rest of this chapter is basically telling those things. In verse 11 it says there, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Then if you go down to verse 17, it says, Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding food they craved. And it goes on and on. If you read the rest of this chapter, it just gives example after example of how stubborn and rebellious they were and how they disobeyed God. And so to kind of turn this on the positive, we want to teach the younger generation so that they will be faithful and not be stubborn and rebellious. So that's the basic idea that we need to get across. And a part of that, that process that God used, of course, was his discipline. He punished them by saying, okay, you were stubborn, rebellious, you didn't listen to the spies who went into the, the land and spied it out and said it's a good land, they rebelled. And God says because of that, you're going to have to wander in the desert for 40 years. So there were consequences to their rebellion. And we need to realize that Yes, God will forgive us when we repent, but sometimes there are serious consequences that we still have to deal with. In the story of David and Bathsheba, which we just covered a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 51, where David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Well, God forgave him for his adultery, but if you remember, Bathsheba became pregnant. And in Samuel, when Nathan the prophet came to David and pointed out his sin, he says there in chapter 12 of, of 2 Samuel in verse 13, he says, I forgive you, David. But what was the consequence? The very next verse, verse 14 says, your child will die because of your sin. So the child that was born by Bathsheba God says it's going to die. There was a consequence. That's a serious consequence that another person suffered because of your sin. We need to realize just how serious sin is. Sometimes there are consequences. And like I mentioned in the beginning, 
70% of 15 to 18 year olds will stop going to church. And unfortunately, there are some serious consequences that may happen to the children that decide, make decisions that your parents wouldn't like, and they have to then suffer those consequences. They may come back to church, but wouldn't it have been better if they stayed in church and not suffered the consequences or potential consequences of their sin? I'm not saying that everybody who leaves has serious sin, but it does happen. And so, a better way is to obey God from the beginning. A paraphrase of Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no revelation, people leave unrestrained lives, but the person who obeys God's law is happy and blessed. Let's look at that and think about that. The person who obeys God's law will be happy and blessed. There are plenty of examples in the Bible of people who obey God in tough times. And I had a hard time just narrowing this list down, but I was going to tell you about a, a few of them. Joseph. What happened when Joseph was taken by his brothers and sold into Egypt? He landed in a, a person named Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife, it says in Genesis 39, made a pass at him every single day. In other words, she made sexual advances and say, she said that the Bible says, come and lie with me. Lie with me being a, a way of just saying, have sex with me. How many of us would be able to resist that, a woman coming every single day and saying, have sex with me? I mean, I was in my 30s when I married Carla, late 30s actually, 39 when I married Carla. If you would think it was easy being a Christian and being single until I was 39, you're crazy. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely, you know, it wasn't easy, you know, waiting that long to, to get married. And yet Joseph resisted that temptation day after day. We need to tell the next generation about the struggles that we have had. Why? They need to know how to handle it. And so we need to be open and honest about the things that we have gone through in order to encourage them. Then one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Ruth, an amazing woman. She was a foreigner from another land, and when Naomi came back to Israel, Naomi tried to persuade her, go back. And that would be the right thing to do in Ruth's situation, being a foreigner. Go back to your family. Your father will arrange another husband for you. And yet Ruth, it says, clung to Naomi. And she says, you know, I will go where you go. My God will be your, your God will be my God. And she remained faithful to Naomi. And when she got there in the land of Israel, she obeyed every instruction. When Naomi said, do this, she did it. And what was the reward for Ruth? Well, she got redeemed. She got a husband by the name of Boaz, and she became the great-grandmother of King David. That's absolutely wonderful. And some of you may think, you know, I'm a foreigner in a strange land. I don't know the language. And, you know, all those types of things. Remain faithful to God. Another favorite of mine are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken by Nebuchadnezzar out of the land of Israel into Babylon, into a foreign culture. And one day, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to make a golden idol, and for 30 days, everybody has to pray, or else they'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so everybody did. Everybody went along. The peer pressure said, okay, all you have to do is, you know, bow down to this idol, pray to it, and things will be fine. But what did they say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It says here, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Wow, a fiery furnace that they're going to be thrown into, and they say our God is able to deliver us, but if not, we will not serve. They faced up to peer pressure, and of course they were delivered. God delivered them out of that fiery furnace. But their faith was so strong, they would not conform to everybody else who said, oh, it's no big deal, bow down to the idol, pray to it, and then everything's okay. They faced peer pressure and dealt with it, and God delivered them. Another of my uh, favorite characters is Queen Esther. Queen Esther became uh, queen of Persia, the king of Persia, because the first uh, queen did not obey him, and he got rid of her, and they made a look through the land, and finally Esther becomes queen. But then there comes a plot. A rich person, a wealthy person, a powerful person named Haman said, I want to exterminate the Jews. Why? Because there's a person named Mordecai, and Mordecai just furiates Haman because he won't bow down to him. And Haman happens to be the uncle of Esther. And so this person here, Haman, says, I want to. And he, the king signs an order to wipe out the Jews, all the Jews in Persia, by his order. And of course, Esther's like, but I am a Jew. And she's wondering, what, you know, this is no, no discrimination. In other words, the king basically signed the death warrant for his wife, the queen, when he signed that order. And so when this happened, Mordecai goes to her and says to Esther, and who knows whether you have come to this palace for such a time as this. In other words, it was destiny, God's will, that Esther was now put into that place. But a person could not approach the king without the king inviting them to come. In other words, you just couldn't go to the king's door, knock, 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 I want to see you. And so what would happen is that if Esther did that, she was risking her life. The king could say, away with you, because you have approached me without you, me calling you. And so what does Esther say there? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days or night or day and I and my young men will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so she did her preparation. She got a prayer meeting, said, let's pray for three days, let's fast for three days, and then I will go to the king like you, Mordecai, have said, and if I perish because I have illegally gone and knocked on the door and say, I want to see you and I want to talk to you, she said, if I perish, I perish. How many of us have that courage to speak up? She was willing to speak up for the right thing to not exterminate the Jews, and that's exactly what happened. She gains the favor of the king, and actually it's Haman that suffers the consequences. There's a reversal in this story. But the idea that Esther was willing to risk her life to speak up for the right thing. How many of us need to speak up for the right thing regardless of the cost to us? So that is the idea that we have then for this, this message that we need to tell the next generation about the wonders of God. Why? So that they will hope in God and they will be faithful to God. Going back to what I said earlier about the 15 to 18 year olds, that one of the things that they said was at least one adult from church made a significant investment in me personally and spiritually between 15 and 18. How can we do this? If you're sitting here today thinking that, you know, um, well, what can I do? Well, first of all, if you're a parent, you need to be discipling your children. And just as you're uh, 
the Bible talks when you rise up, when you sit down, when you lie down. Well, just think about it. When you're around the dining table, when you're driving to soccer or football uh, practice, uh, when you're serving at the church, when you're uh, entertaining guests, all those types of daily activities are examples where you can disciple your children. And then if you're an adult and don't have children or may have children, you can also teach Sunday school. Uh, you can lead the children's choirs. We can volunteer for youth group, lead a life group. I've enjoyed this summer uh, being involved with the Quest group and, and teaching them. And they're a wonderful group of kids and really have, have enjoyed getting to know them. Then you can uh, maybe do something like personally mentoring a, a young adult in the ages that, that really need somebody to come along and help them to deal with things. But the thing is that, you know, we need to do this because it only takes one unfaithful generation to have lasting effects on other generations. We can see when I uh, grew up uh, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, it was a very rebellious time, the, the hippie movement and so on. And there were consequences to the, the hippie movement and things like that. And so a disobedient generation can have consequences on other generations. And yet a generation that is faithful to God can also reverse the effects of that. So the question is that I put to use, what kind of gener generation do we want as a church do we want a generation that's faithful to god then it's up to us to invest in the young people that are here at our church i don't know exactly how many of, of our children are in the like 15 to 18 year old uh, youngins here but those that are here even younger from you know 12 years and upwards we need to be investing are we going to do that are we going to respond? If we want a faithful generation, are we going to step up and do what God has asked us to do? So that's what I have for today. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Dear Father, I thank you and praise you for this day and thank you for your wonders. Help us, Lord, to stand up for what's right, to set the example for our young'uns and for uh, those that are dealing with problems. Help us, Lord, to take their hands and to uh, walk with them towards you, God, and to be faithful to you, God, and set the example for those that need to know you. For it's in your name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.